0: I was just like, what did I even do wrong? I didn't steal. (laughs) I didn't lie. I didn't cheat. We ran a very clean race, but our opposition was so angry.
1: This is Death, Sex, and Money. This show from WNYC, about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Steele.
0: All eyes may have been on New York City's mayoral race last night, but the biggest upset might have actually been in the state's second largest city, which could soon see the country's first socialist mayor in half a century.
1: In Buffalo, New York, in June of 2021, India Walton beat four-term incumbent mayor Byron Brown in the Democratic primary. She was 39, a registered nurse, mother of four kids. The political establishment was shocked. And so was she.
0: Mommy! I won! Mommy, I'm the mayor of Buffalo! Well, not in January, but Yeah!
1: This video of her calling her mom after her victory went viral.
0: Yes, mom! I won! My mother is probably the only person on this planet that I really care about what she thinks of me. So I worked really hard to try and make her proud. And she and I had been speaking... um, for a few months about my reasons for continuing to live in Buffalo. She lives in Alabama. She loves it there. I have family in Georgia. And I promised her that if I did not win the primary, that I would pack up and I would come down to Phoenix City, Alabama with her.
1: Oh, so there was a lot in that call. There's like, I did this, mommy. And you were also calling to say, I'm not coming to live where you live.
0: I'm staying in Buffalo. (laughs) Because... Um, presumptively I was going to be the mayor. So that's the job I can only do from
1: here. India Walton is not mayor of Buffalo. The incumbent mayor she beat launched a write-in campaign and was sworn in to another term at the beginning of 2022. We talked about that election loss and also about all that happened before that in her life that shaped her politics. Becoming a parent for the first time at 14, being a survivor of intimate partner violence, putting herself through nursing school, and then in her mid-30s, leaving that career behind to become a neighborhood organizer. And we also talked about the horror in Buffalo, five months after her campaign loss, when a white supremacist gunman murdered 10 Black people in a grocery store.
0: My youngest son still won't go into a grocery store. Hmm. He sits in the car. Well, a grocery shop, or he just is really adamant that we instacart instead.
1: The shooting took place on Buffalo's east side, the predominantly black part of town where India grew up with her mother and five siblings. For school, she was bussed across town where mostly white people lived.
0: And my best friend when I was 12 years old, um Carrie, lived in South Buffalo. And Carrie and I didn't see each other over the summer. Um we used to write letters and put them in snail mail to communicate because I wasn't allowed to go to South Buffalo outside of being in school and she wasn't allowed to come to East Buffalo.
1: Hmm. You didn't like hang out together at the mall over the summer. No. It was like you were in different worlds.
0: Exactly. And there was a palpable difference in the standard of living, right? I mean, where I was experiencing a lot of demolitions happening in my neighborhood the neighborhood I went to school in was still very well maintained, even down to being able to walk on a sidewalk safely, um, as opposed to in my neighborhood where there were sidewalks that are broken, cracked, or non-existent at all, and we just had to walk in the street.
1: Tell me if any of this is too too personal, but I'm I'm curious. I want to hear about when you became a mother. Um, mm-hmm. the first time when you When you realized you were pregnant, um, was it a surprise? Unfortunately,
0: no. (laughs) Um, I was the primary caregiver for my siblings. My mother worked full-time and overtime as a pharmacy technician at the VA hospital. And um, in all of my smartness... I figured that if I had a child of my own, then I could just move out and I wouldn't have to be responsible for my other siblings. And if I could do that, I might as well run my own household. And, you know, that's not only coupled with the weight and responsibility of helping my mom take care of the home while she worked outside the house, but, you know, just a lot of other traumatic and inappropriate things that were happening because she was away from home so much and i had older brothers whose friends would come over you know i had been sexually assaulted multiple times and just wanted to get away
1: wow so for you for your 14 year old self becoming a parent was a way to get some control over over your life mhm it didn't take long for india's plan to fall apart Her son, Makai, was diagnosed with sickle cell anemia, and her relationship with his dad ended.
0: When Makai was born, I came back home with my mother. Um, Eventually, I voluntarily went into placement with the state. So I lived with my baby in a group home for teenage mothers. Hmm. Um, What was that like? It was a formative experience. It was how I learned to live independently. Uh Um, It was how I learned to anticipate needing a coat and boots for my baby before the snow actually came. Uh Um, It was how (laughs) it was how I learned to manage um, being able to go to school and still spend time with him. And, you know, do basic things like plan a menu and buy buy groceries. Um, It was A supportive environment where there were expectations and rules. And I think that I've made lots of questionable decisions in my life, but that the decision to go into placement for me was one that, um, that paid off. Uh, Lots of questionable
1: decisions. (laughs) (laughs) When you say to go into placement, like what, what did that mean? Was that saying like, I need help from the state? Was that saying, I, what did that, what did that look like?
0: It meant that I had to convince my mother to agree to waive her parental rights and allow me to become a ward of the state.
1: This, India says, was a way the government helped her as a young mom, but the school system, not as much. India stayed in school at first in a program designed for students who were mothers. But she says she eventually got bored because she felt the school wasn't academically rigorous enough. She dropped out, got her GED, and when she was 19, gave birth to twin boys.
0: They were born at 24 weeks. um, And their chances of survival were really slim. They spent six months in the hospital. And... um, I had complained to one of their nurses about the way some of the other nurses spoke to me and spoke about them. And she said, if you don't like it, why don't you go become a nurse? (laughs) Um.
1: (laughs) Challenge (laughs) 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 accepted.
0: As is um, sort of my M.O., I, I went to nursing school and eventually I went back and I worked in that same NICU where um where my boys were born where Kathy told me if I didn't like it I should go be a nurse and I I worked there for almost 10 years
1: wait was Kathy one of the nurses who spoke to you in a way you didn't like
0: no Kathy was my girl oh i see okay um, <laughs> Kathy was one of the one of the few people that i felt like i could relate to um and who spoke to me like i had half a brain who explained things fully and who really honored my role as a mother, as a part of the care team.
1: Um, The nurses who didn't speak to you with respect, um, were they white?
0: Yeah. I mean, the interesting part about life in the NICU is that, um, I mean, you know, when we talk about infant mortality and maternal outcomes, people who are disproportionately impacted by that tend to be women of color and you know, we're servicing a client that eighty percent of the consumers are on Medicaid, and yet there's hardly any staff that look like the folks we serve. And zero Spanish-speaking nurses. <laughs> um, you know, we had to use a translator phone to speak to families who spoke Spanish as their first language. And it was just like, in my opinion, it was an issue. And um, I used to get into quite a bit of conflict regarding the lack of diversity and the lack of culturally competent care.
1: Can you give me an example of what that conflict looked like? You
0: know, just... Listening to team members say distasteful things about the families, um, about mothers, about <laughs> the future of whatever these children's lives might be like, and having to say, I don't think it's right that you're saying that about them. So I will go work, do my job, and then I would go home and hug my babies and cry sometimes but it's okay.
1: <laughs> In 2014, India left the NICU and became a nurse at a Buffalo public school, kindergarten to 8th grade. For some of her students, she was the only healthcare professional they saw.
0: It's funny because um one of the teachers assistants came into my office one day and she said, "I wish I could have this job just sitting here all day doing nothing." <laughs> I said, girl, I'm not doing nothing. I'm responsible for every person in this building. All 452 people, students, teachers, visitors, right? If something goes wrong, I have to know what to do in all of those situations.
1: Did you talk to the kids who were on the verge of puberty uh, about sex and having been a young mom?
0: I did. I actually, um, I would punch out at three o'clock and take off my nurse's hat. And then at three 15, I would put on my mentor hat and I ran an after-school program called fly girls, FLY, um, stood for finally loving yourself. And, um, oh. um one day I brought in a bunch of mirrors from the dollar store And I made them just stare at themselves in the mirror for, like, five minutes and then write down, like, what they saw and what they thought of themselves.
1: Coming up, India talks about her decision to leave her husband.
0: The last altercation we were in, he broke a couple of my ribs. It was the day before my birthday. I had to go to the hospital. And when I got, when I left the hospital, I could not return.
1: This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. India Walton describes democratic socialism as the politics of caring. And into her 20s, she had cared a lot cared about diversity at work, about her patients and students, and she wanted to learn how to organize to care for more people. She had received some training as a union leader at the hospital. And after she became a school nurse, she saw an ad on Facebook for a leadership course with a local grassroots group, Open Buffalo.
0: All of the oppression and systems that I noticed all along, right? And that I would like call out in like discreet ways, but didn't have the vocabulary to explain what it was I was experiencing, right mm-hmm. um and i think that like racism is a very loaded term right but when you can drill down and talk about social determinants of health and how racialized capital prevents people from being able to do basic things right and it's like not because they don't want to it's because they can't cuz they don't have the resources and i've seen that translate into The education system, the healthcare system, housing, all of these concepts can be applied, right? Like at the intersection of everything.
1: While India was having these eye-opening realizations about the language of systemic racism, at home, things were oppressive. Her husband, the father of her three youngest boys, was physically abusive
0: one of my twins witnessed my husband beat me up and he went to school and told his teacher and his school called Child Protective Services on me. And they were threatening to um, remove my children from my care because I was being physically abused by my husband. So my choices were to either end my marriage um, or allow the state to place my children in foster care. And that was how it ended. It ended with us going to court and the court saying he had to leave that day. <laughs> um, And just like that, it was me and my four boys.
1: How long had you been together when... Um... When it first became physically violent, this relationship—we
0: had been together for ten years.
1: Oh, and when that happened, was it a surprise to you?
0: It. it, I don't think it was a surprise because I could see things begin to escalate. So, um, I met my husband when I was 17 years old and at each step of growth and maturity for me, he would say, or do something right. He would say, um, when you get your GED, you're going to leave me. Mm. Um, when you get your LP and you're going to leave me. Um, And then I had weight loss surgery. I lost 120 pounds. And that was when the physical abuse
1: started. After you had this physical transformation, um, Mm -hmm. did you tell anyone when he became physically violent? I did not. I think often when we hear about stories of of violence and and intimate partner relationships, it's often from people who um, are telling the story of having made the decision to leave. Um, And I'm wondering if you can go back to to that period of time when you didn't know that the relationship was going to end. You wanted to keep advancing to take care of your family You needed to, in the way that you advanced, needed to be done in such a way that it wouldn't make your partner violent. What was it like to be trying to um, navigate all of those concerns when you weren't really the one in charge of whether something was going to become violent?
0: Um, It was one of the most difficult times of my life and the way i dealt with it was i got hyper religious mm-hmm. because i thought that like church was a safe place and that if i could convince him that I was good, that he would be nice to me, mm-hmm. um, and that he would protect me from himself. Um, and I mean, when things were good, they were good. And most times they were, but when things were bad, they were bad. Like he, oh goodness. I remember like he would do things like intentionally deprive me of sleep like I would be sleeping and he would just wake me up like knowing that I had to go to work for a 12 hour shift like just would not allow me to sleep
1: Mm -hmm. yeah did anyone at church know what was happening at home at the time
0: I don't know I do remember one of the elders, um, you know, when I said that I was thinking about leaving, telling me that a wise woman builds her home, but a foolish one would tear it down with her own hands.
1: Oh, man. Do you still go to that church? I do not. And was it after that that you started the Fly Girls?
0: It was during it.
1: Did you get yourself a dollar store mirror to look at at your face and write down words?
0: I did. I cried right along with them.
1: Coming up, India finds a new line of work.
0: When I discovered that there were folks who get to speak up against injustice and it's their actual job I said I want to do that I want to be an organizer
1: (laughs) you can get paid for that (laughs) (laughs) who knew (laughs) over the years we've had a number of political leaders on the show Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, current Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, and way back in one of the show's very first episodes, former Wyoming Senator Al Simpson. I love these episodes because they remind me that despite how much we hear people in politics talking on the news, it is incredibly rare to hear them describe their lives in a real way, free of platitudes or, you know, just in a way that acknowledges they haven't always gotten it right. We've put links to those episodes in our show notes, and who knows, maybe listening back will make you realize you may have more to contribute in the political realm. Of course, joining the fray of our nasty politics these days may sound less pleasant than a root canal, but for those of you who have put yourselves forward to do something in public life, in your community, we want to hear why. What was the deciding factor for you to step forward and try? Whether you've been a candidate yourself or started a neighborhood group or volunteered or organized a protest or letter writing campaign, send us an email at Wnyc.org and tell us about your experience and how your newfound resolve affected the rest of your life. We want to hear about your forays into politics and community building, the big and small. And we'll share some of what we hear back in our weekly newsletter. If you are not already getting that, you are missing out. Each week, there's a personal note from me, along with stories from our listeners and other fun stuff. Subscribe at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better. David Duchovny's new podcast with Limonata Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, oh. carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game
1: Pass. Hey, I want to tell you about a podcast that I really enjoy called Search Engine. It's hosted by PJ Vote, and each week he and his team answer these perfect questions— The kinds of questions that you ask at a dinner party and totally derail the conversation. Like, episodes include, when do you know it's time to stop drinking? Does anyone like their job? How do you survive fame with Molly Ringwald? What are we going to do with all these cats? About feral cats and how they affect nature. And wait, is it unsafe to drink the water on airplanes? No, but you should definitely listen to the episode to find out more. I love listening to this show, and I usually find myself smiling the whole way through. And there's also at least one moment each episode where there's a line of writing that makes me hit pause and rewind just to admire the turn of phrase. If you find this world bewildering, but also sometimes enjoy being bewildered by it, check out Search Engine. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman, and I host a podcast called Design
0: Matters from the TED Audio Collective. Every episode, I have conversations with designers, writers, artists, and other luminaries of contemporary thought, people like Roman Mars, Ai Weiwei, Ethan Hawke, and Ashley Ford. We not only talk about their crafts, but how they design the arc of their lives, what they've learned, what obstacles they've overcome, and how they've done it, and how they see the world. Join us for an inquiry into the broader world of creative culture. Find and follow Design Matters with Debbie Millman wherever you're listening to
1: this. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Buffalo, New York, continues to be a city starkly separated by race. 85% of the city's Black population lives on the East Side, When India Walton was in her 30s, she moved to the historic east side neighborhood called the Fruit Belt, which was once covered in orchards. The streets are still named after fruit. There's orange,
0: grape, lemon, locust, mulberry, and maple. And then if you go on the other side of the Kensington Expressway, there's also cherry, pine, spruce, hickory. Um, but now that that neighborhood has been severed um, by the creation of an urban highway.
1: They built a highway right through this idyllic mm-hmm. orchard area. Yep. As India began her career as an organizer, this neighborhood was in transition. For decades after the highway went in, property values sank and housing fell into disrepair. Some were demolished in the name of quote-unquote urban renewal, By the time India moved there, developers were interested in the area, and longtime residents, fearful of getting priced out, eventually joined together to form a land trust that took over ownership of vacant lots. India was a big part of that effort, but her first paid organizing job in 2016 focused on criminal justice.
0: It was a vision for how we end cash bail, how we stop low-level marijuana enforcement, how we continue to address the problem that we have with violent crime and gun violence while making sure that we are able to have some accountability measures for our law enforcement. So um, it just it exposed me to being able to dream of another world. Um, that's that's centered on caring about people. Hmm. Um,
1: were you making about the same amount of money as you had when you were a nurse?
0: No, um, I went from making about close to seventy thousand dollars a year working part time um, to making forty
1: mm. with yeah. three kids at home. Yeah. That must have been hard, have your income cut in about half and figure out how to do it.
0: It was it was rough, but the work-life balance, the feeling that I got from doing work that I found to be extremely meaningful, and I also felt like it was a temporary state of being there were going to be opportunities for me to advance fairly quickly and make more money because i was really good at what i was doing
1: do you th- how do you think of yourself when it comes to like risk calculations and making moves like um you i'm just hearing in in the way that you tell these stories a sense of confidence um of just and clarity, and I just—I'm wondering, do you know where that comes from?
0: Um, I think it comes from surviving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I—I have had times in my life where I've thought, "Man, can things get any worse?" and then they did. <laughs> so. Uh-huh. It's just kind of like, I, I'm i not afraid of failure. I've just for a long time felt like I don't have anything to lose. And I can't really lose if I don't try. So why not?
1: When it first popped into your head, maybe I'm going to run for mayor of Buffalo what was the feeling you had when you first had that idea?
0: Um, I said, Byron Brown has fumbled every major issue of our time. And, um, I'm like, it's a long shot, but someone has to do something like <laughs> we can't allow him to just keep being unopposed and then begging for audience from him when it's time for him to make decisions that benefit us. Why are we still the third poorest city of its size? Why do we have a child poverty rate of 40 percent? Why do we have one of the, the largest racial wealth and home ownership gaps in the country? Why? Why? Why do we have a Black mayor and we have not seen any progress in the Black community for the last 30 years? I just felt like I had to do something. And unlike a lot of people in Buffalo, I have this nursing thing to fall back on. So I'm not married to having to work for a nonprofit or even the municipality. So many people are in some way connected to city government that they don't feel like they can speak out against him because there's this culture of fear and retribution that I am not immune to, but very insulated from. There's nothing that anyone can really do to me.
1: Hmm.
0: So I sort of felt obligated.
1: He's making you do it. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it just sounds it the echo of like I have to be in the you, like identifying how it could be different um mm-hmm. and then you're in a position where you can try to change it and it, it's a privilege you know to it's
0: it really is
1: but I I were you startled like, was there any part of you that was startled by the like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to do this? Not really. Uh huh. Not until it was too late.
0: <laughs> um, what do you mean by I that? Really, I knew that it was going to be tough, but I did not expect it to get as nasty as it did. Um, I really honestly, somewhere deep down inside, was believing that Brown was a reasonable person and that if I won the primary, he would turn into a mentor and there would have been a productive transition.
1: That did not happen. After India won the Democratic primary, Mayor Brown would not concede, and he launched a write-in campaign to stay in office. — Ladies and gentlemen, there is only one mayor of the city of Buffalo, and that is Mayor Byron Brown. They do not want a radical socialist occupying the mayor's office in Buffalo City Hall. — After her primary win, Bernie Sanders fundraised for India. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came to Buffalo to campaign with her, But some prominent state Democrats sat it out. The governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, who's from Buffalo, did not endorse India. And the chairman of the New York Democratic Party, Jay Jacobs, didn't either, as he shared in a local TV interview.
0: Let's take a scenario uh, very different, where David Duke, you remember him, the grand wizard of the KKK? He moves to New York, he becomes a Democrat, and he runs for mayor in the city of Rochester, which has a low primary turnout, and he wins the Democratic line. I have to endorse David Duke? I don't think so. Now, of course, India Walton isn't in the same category, but it just it just— Leads you to that question is it a must? It's
1: not a must. Local media also started digging into India's past. Public records filed at the city and county courthouses show that Walton has been accused of welfare fraud, failed to pay her taxes, and was caught driving with a suspended license. How do you answer that reporting? And what do you make of that being presented in the press where the implicit argument is that that? should be disqualified? The
0: thing about it is that, you know, the comms team, you know, wanted the apple and like, well, what's going to come out about you and how are you going to explain it? How do you spin it? And I said, I'm not going to spin it. I'm going to tell the truth. There are things that, that happen to regular people, especially poor and working class folks all the time. In fact, there are systems that are set up in order to punish people particularly for being poor, like why my license was suspended for unpaid parking tickets. How, how do you if I couldn't pay the parking tickets, right? And I don't have a license, how am I supposed to get to work to pay the parking tickets? I'm not your average politician. I'm not trying to sell you on whether I'm a good or bad person. I'm trying to introduce you to better policy that is going to keep the stories that are being told about me from happening to
1: you. India says she could feel this heightened scrutiny from others as she campaigned ahead of the general election. Sometimes it was expressed as outright hostility.
0: I was actually in a strip mall in a first ring suburb of Buffalo. I went to Ulta to get tinted moisturizer. And I was walking out of the store. (laughs) And, you know, people point and whisper and sometimes they take photos of me and I try and be engaging And most interactions are pleasant. So this person is walking with his female companion um, and they're pointing and whispering to one another. And I can overhear her saying, I think that is her. So I said, hi. And he said, F you. And he gave me the finger. And I said, I hope you have a blessed day. So as I'm continuing to walk to my car, he's now in his truck and throws the coffee out of the window of the truck and drives off. And I think that was the last day I was allowed to go outside by myself.
1: To the extent that you do have a sense, um, why do you think that person threw hot coffee at you?
0: (sighs) Because I'm audacious. Because I am... A brown woman and how dare I challenge power and how dare I take up space and how dare I tell the truth and expose the corruption when I should be shrinking um Hmm. and ashamed of my past um And I'm not proud of everything, but there's nothing that I'm ashamed of.
1: In the November general election, India lost to Mayor Byron Brown, who won with nearly 60% of the vote, again, as a write-in candidate. Mayor Brown said voters saw the progress he had brought to Buffalo in the past 16 years, including economic development that had attracted more people to move to the city. He called his re-election, quote, one of the greatest comeback stories in our history. When you realized how the general election was going, what the results were, did you call your mother that night? She was here. What was that like? She was
0: in Buffalo. Um, It was somber and it was sad. But I am very proud of The campaign that we ran. I mean, that race took a lot out of me. I am still very much going through a process of healing and of grieving, but you know, right now I am enjoying my child. I am enjoying. Being in love, and eating good food, and hanging out with my sister and my niece and nephew.
1: We haven't talked about who you're in love with. Ooh. <laughs> is it a new romance? It is a new romance.
0: Old friendship, new romance. It is the healthiest relationship I've ever been in in my life.
1: That's nice. Did you know each other as, like, teenagers? like young kids?
0: No, we, um, we know one another from community work. Um, yeah, it's, this is, it's new to me having, um, a partner who communicates and talks about his feelings. Um, and it's just very reassuring and reaffirming to me. Um, and also just allows me to be myself and um if I'm having a bad day I can say I would like some space and it's not a big deal I can get some space and when I say I'm having a bad day and I could really use a hug
1: that can happen too so it's pretty cool it's nice And as she grieved her campaign, there was another heartbreaking instance for India of thinking things can't get worse, and then they do. We begin with breaking news from Western New York. Just moments ago, Buffalo police confirmed an 18-year-old man opened fire at a supermarket, killing 10 people and wounding three others. On May 14th, 2022, India was at her 12-year-old son's baseball game when her phone started blowing up.
0: All of these text messages were coming in saying, where are you? Are you okay? Check on your people. Like, um, it was unbelievable. And I thought for about an hour, maybe two, what my role is. And whether I should go to the scene or not. Um, Yeah. And then I started getting text messages saying that people were looking for me. Did you go? I went. I went and I went up there every day. But it was it was difficult. I was uh, asked to appear on Democracy Now! Sunday morning. India, welcome back to Democracy Now! Right now, you're just a few blocks from the grocery store where the shooting took place. Can you describe? And this was your before the- I had read What's happening in your the list of victims. Um, and on Democracy Now! was actually like, when I found out that my friend Kat was in the store. Um, There are a lot of heavy hearts in Buffalo right now. Details are still emerging. Amy, and as a matter of fact, I didn't know that Kat Massey was one of the victims. Um,
1: I I saw that, India, and I thought, oh, you're being called upon to be a spokesperson of sorts for Buffalo... The communities you come from in Buffalo, and you're also the horror of the personal loss is still unfolding in real time. And you're on camera when you realize someone you worked alongside was murdered. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you want to say about your friend Kat?
0: She was a lovely person. Um. I would go over and knock on her door every few months just to check on her. She'd invite me in for tea and we would look at pictures. Kat always had her camera and this woman attended every single fruit belt meeting. She was one of the very first people who truly believed that we could pull it off. And actually build houses for our community. And I'm going to miss her. She (laughs) once sat me down and she said, I love everything that you're doing, but I want you to know that you get more bees with honey than you do vinegar.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love you. I love what you're doing. I'm going to tell it to you straight. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, India, just stop. Stop cursing people out.
0: <laughs> Have you? For the most part. I turned 40 this year. Um, and I mean, just being in the public eye consistently and having everything that I say or do scrutinized has made me a little more aware but I'm still
1: human that's India Walton Since the election in Buffalo, she's taken a new job as an advisor with New York's Progressive Working Families Party. She's still working closely with organizers in and around the fruit belt, and she told us she's considering running for city council in 2023. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Zoe Azoulay. The rest of the team is Andrew Dunn, Afi Duke, Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Special thanks to our colleague John Campbell, Albany reporter for WNYC and Gothamist. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Thank you to Claire Muter from Iowa City for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. You can join Claire and support what we do here by going to org slash donate. And does your mother, does your mom still want you to move to Alabama?
0: I'm sure she would love it, but I am in the process of purchasing my first home. Oh, you are? I am. And she's really proud of that, so I think that she sees it. I'm putting down roots even deeper into Buffalo.
1: Do you know where the house is? Which neighborhood is it in?
0: Right around the corner from the mayor.
1: I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. It's Opinion Palooza season here at Slate. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, the host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. As this Supreme Court term hurdles towards its close, the justices are handing down decisions that will shape our politics and our lives for years and decades to come. My team and I are putting out analysis of the biggest cases just as quickly as we can bound to our closets and fire up our laptops to speak to you from presidential immunity to social media content regulation to domestic abusers' gun rights, we will be here unpacking the news for you. Listen to Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, And her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name.
0: The the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are.
1: Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts
0: or wherever you're listening right now.